today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Obviously, uh, we're seeing what's going on on in uh, Minnesota and the demonstrations that are going on, and uh, obviously uh, the uh, the unrest that we're seeing uh, pretty much on a nightly basis this week uh, in regard to uh, a couple of different scenarios, and and it just seems to keep playing out. Uh, in America, whether it's uh, the situation with Dante Wright and shot by uh, the officer, apparently thought she was using a taser. We'll talk more about that. Uh, the ongoing trial uh, in regard to the murder of uh, George Floyd and even a, a recent scenario as well where we see um, uh, a man in a military uniform also uh, getting pulled over. So how do you move forward on all of this? Where, How do you even begin to bridge the gaps that uh, that, that obviously exist here. Let's bring in Andrew uh, Fergiuelli. Uh, Andrew is a lecturer with the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto and is with us now. Andrew, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thanks for having me again, Scott. You know, it's interesting, Andrew. Uh, we go back to other incident situations like this. It's remember the name, remember the name. It's hard to remember names when we're hearing so many of them. Many thought with the George Floyd situation and what eventually became nine minutes and 29 seconds uh, that we all saw there that we would see change. Do you see any of this moving forward or is it more of the same? Well, it feels like more of the um, and it's because it's these interactions with uh, between police and, and citizens, box citizens, and the criminal justice system as a whole. It's just such a flashpoint um, for the race relations issue in the United States. It's, it's criminal justice and police interactions are where the, the rubber on that often hits the road in public view. I think moving forward, these cases have... Uh, sparked a lot of conversation and a lot of uh, introspection from people. Uh, it feels like it keeps playing out over and over again, uh, but I think there is movement in terms of people's understanding of these issues going forward. Uh, this latest situation involving Dante Wright uh, being pulled over, uh, for a violation, and uh, you see the, the footage of, of the officers approaching the, the car. Uh, the female officer, it's alleged now that she thought she was pulling a taser and actually pulling a gun. How does that fly in the United States of America? Well, you're seeing how it flies. Um, it, it, there, was, there was no surprise at all that uh, after that video surfaced, after the, the incident happened, that there were going to be demonstrations there are. That's, there's no surprise there. Um, in terms of how it flies in the criminal justice system, you, you saw the news today that the officer has been charged with manslaughter um, after uh, yesterday's news that she had resigned. There really was no other option for them, given this video. Uh, there had to be some sort of a charge here, and, and, uh, and we'll see how the system deals with it going forward. But uh, right now, it's surprising in terms of how it's been playing out video i haven't talked to any law enforcement experts in regard to this and and i'm not sure whether you can and answer this andrew but your thoughts on you know I, I thought it was a taser does that happen well so there's there's some issues with it um can accidents happen in the heat of the moment can mistakes be made in the heat of the moment yes 
Um, the training part of it, though, you, you heard the, the police chief from the region say, generally speaking, you have your gun at your dominant hand and your taser at your less dominant hand. There are differences between the two in steel, in weight. Um, the training and the inherent differences between the two of them are supposed to minimize anything like this happening. Uh, and so it's not from a use of force perspective to look at this because um, you've got a situation where everything that's being done is supposed to minimize the risk of this happening. And here it is clearly happening on video. So I don't know that it's really a use of force issue because if the officers believe that they were reaching for their taser, that's one thing. Uh, the issue is going to be how reasonable was that mistake in the circumstances. Uh, let's say hypothetically that justice is served here, uh, to, to everyone's liking. I guess that's impossible. Uh, but these officers are held to account, uh, in the eyes of the community. Will this change anything? Will, will people look to this and say, see, now we have a benchmark, an example here? Well, I, I think the accountability part of it is, is a necessity for this going forward. I think, the, the, the way to look at it is if it doesn't happen, what happens? Um, and if it doesn't happen, then you're just spiraling uh, further down this vortex that the United States is in, um, in terms of, of race issues. But uh, So the accountability part, I don't know if it stalls anything, but it's a necessary step going forward just for uh, uh, citizens in the black community to have some sense that the justice system will be responsive when something like this happens. Uh, it, it seems that the, you know these situations escalate; they get out of hand pretty quickly uh, when someone resists r- arrest. Do, is there? Uh, and again, I, I don't profess to be an expert on any of this, but does there need to be some sort of change in how that's addressed? Because it seems. Uh, in the United States, when it's time to go after somebody, look out. It's, you get, you're unlo- you're, they're unleashing the full force here, which sometimes, you know, isn't needed. We're seeing people being shot in the back as they're running away. We're seeing people being shot for, you know, trying to escape a, a, a traffic violation. Should, should officers just be backing off on all of this? Letting them well, go? You know, Scott, I'm glad you, you've raised it here because it's it's a perfect example of something that has many different intersectional issues happening. You've got this interaction where you've got these interactions where the police are dealing with individuals and the use of force ramps up. And you start to unpack it, and race is a significant part of it. But so, too, is the proliferation of firearms in the United States, both in terms of people who are not police officers, citizens who could be carrying them, and that police pretty reasonably believe anyone might have. Um, on the one hand, and on the other hand, there's this uh, idea in the United States of, of the importance of the firearm, and the firearm is a reasonable tool to reach for. Uh, and that goes down to the police forces as well. Um, I can tell you, being defense counsel here in Toronto, uh, the number of, of flight from police and resist arrest cases uh, that I've dealt with uh, are, are numerous. They're significant. And uh, for the vast majority of times, you, you have the officer not even considering reaching for their firearm. Uh, there's just, there isn't that same gun culture there, which, which I believe is a strong part of this. And, and to contrast that, you've got so many issues, 
so many instances in the United States where the first thought on anyone's side is to reach for a gun. And it just ramps everything up. Uh, uh, and you start to see, we're really seeing now um, repeatedly uh, the ramifications of that. You know, it's interesting. I've, I've talked to many police officers, and, and again, you talk about maybe different approaches, but, you know, obviously uh, a police officer draws their gun when they feel that their life or the lives of others are in danger, and then it's 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 you or them sort of speak. Um, so are, does this point to the U.S. perhaps being too aggressive on that front or point to the gun issue that you said that they don't know what they're getting into every time they open a car door, no matter what the race of the person is is that valid or is that naive uh, you know it, it's it's part of the conversation i think the united states has to have and there's no doubt that um that it's daunting being a police officer especially there where anyone that you deal with you have to reasonably believe could be carrying a firearm yeah. uh, which i really don't believe is the case here the flip side to that and i think we have to be receptive to this is why do these fatal instances keep happening to young black men and women and, uh, you know, that, that, is, that is not a strand that can be put aside to deal with this issue. It constantly happens uh, that, that when times go, that when these instances go fatal, uh, we consistently see at the other end of it who's, who's dying. Mm. And it's almost invariably people of color. And, and, and so the gun issue, I think, as I said earlier, is a significant issue in terms of these situations ramping up and, and the attitude police bring into them. But the race question cannot be shelved here. Mm. Andrew Fer, uh, Ferguelli has been with us, lecturer with the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto, talking about what is happening in Minnesota and the ongoing uh, situation there, specifically around uh, the shooting of uh, Dante Wright and the ongoing uh, trial uh, with the murder of George Floyd, or certainly his death, uh, at the hands of police. Andrew, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Anytime, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The headline in the Globe and Mail, war is already here. On the Russian border, Ukrainian troops wait for Putin's big push. Uh, are things changing because of a shift in U.S. administration? Let's bring in Oral Braun, professor of international relations and political science and senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto and with us now. Oral, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, I'm fine. Thank you. So uh, why is this happening now, do you think? Is this, does this have anything to do with a change in administration in the United States? It could be part of that. Certainly it's common for the Russian leader to test uh, new presidents, although I uh, need to point out that he has known Joe Biden for a long time. Joe Biden was vice president under the Obama administration, and this was the time uh, in 2009 when they tried to press the reset button with rather disastrous results. Uh, but there are other factors as well, uh, domestic, regional, that are all uh, involved in uh, creating a situation where uh, Vladimir Putin feels both emboldened and perhaps desperate as well. So uh, what are Russia's uh, objectives here? Is this a military exercise or is this a show of, of, uh, this a show of strength? Well, this is what we don't quite know. This is uh, a bluff or this is a, an outright challenge. This is a 
is it a prelude to some military action that is limited? Is it a prelude to all-out war? And part of what happens will depend on the kind of signals that the West sends. If these signals are ambiguous, if they suggest that there may be opportunities, then it is conceivable that Putin will act. Even though Putin has been aggressive, he has not been reckless. That is, he has calculated very carefully. So when he acted, as in the case of Transnistria, or Georgia, or Crimea, or Syria, he found that there were opportunities and his gambles paid off. So it is essential, therefore, to send the message that this would be a gamble that would be reckless, that any possible gain would be far outweighed by the cost that Russia would incur if it actually took large-scale military action. So how will the world react to this, specifically uh, Joe Biden, if, if this is a test for him? How will the U.S. and the rest of the world react to this? This is what makes it so very uncertain, because at one level, Biden has tried to use tough rhetoric. You remember just a few weeks ago, he concurred in a conversation and in, in an interview that uh, Putin was a killer. And yet, uh, uh, just this week, he initiated a call to Vladimir Putin and proposed a summit. What is the message that he's trying to send? Well, the explanation in the White House is that by dangling the promise of a summit where Russia, which has about one-eighth or one-tenth of the economy of the U.S., would be treated like an equal, that promise would prevent Putin from invading the rest of Ukraine, uh, and one can only hope that that is a carrot that will work. But on the other hand, it may also suggest that, as in the case of the Obama administration, where you had, at times, really inflammatory rhetoric on the part of the Secretary of State, for instance, John Kerry, and even President Obama, never materialized into real action, not in Syria, not in the case of uh, Ukraine and the illegal annexation of Crimea. So why is Russia doing this now if they're hoping for a summit with the United States, or is the summit after this buildup already started? Well, the buildup has already started, yeah. and the question is whether the summit would be uh, a sufficient carrot to induce Russia not to uh, move further. But there are many issues that Russia... Uh, is facing that uh, may have driven Putin to do this. One is kind of classic. Things are not going well domestically. So he has continually diverted attention away from domestic problems by trying to focus the attention of Russians on what he claims to be external successes. So the invasion and annexation of Crimea has been popular in Russia, although increasingly less popular than it initially was. The claimed successes in Syria, again, sent the message that Russia is a key power in the international system, not just the humiliated remnant of the Soviet uh, empire. Uh, the economy of Russia is doing very poorly. COVID is rampant. Uh, they have officially admitted that more than 70,000 uh, 70, people have died. But uh, the vast majority of analysts believe that the number has been at least tripled that. The vaccine that they produce, Sputnik V, or Sputnik V, uh, has been exported, but domestically people don't trust it. Uh, fewer than 7% of the 
of the Russian population has been uh, inoculated. So, Why do they uh, not trust their own vaccine? The Russian uh, medical system is very inefficient. The government is horribly corrupt. The uh, policies that they have pursued uh, have destroyed the confidence of the people they have in anything that the government uh, says. And um, they are looking at vaccines such as uh, Moderna and Pfizer, which have a very strong reputation. They would, they would very much like to get those vaccines, but they do not have uh, access to those. So it is an indication of how relatively little trust the Russian people have in their government. They may acquiesce to the rule, but doesn't mean that they really trust it. So why would they have so much support for Putin, or do they? When you don't have a free press, when there is no proper electoral process, when you kill off or you jail your opponents, then it is relatively easy to stand high in the polls. Is what is happening in the world regarding, uh, you, you talked about a distraction, distraction from uh, domestic issues at home and such. Uh, obviously, the, the world focus now is on COVID-19, and if anybody, probably China. It, does that play into this? The world's distracted looking somewhere else. Yes. I mean, there are many, many factors, and that could, again, be one where they uh, believe in the Kremlin that uh, this could be a low-risk action. There's also the fact that the Ukrainian president did not prove to be as malleable, as pliant as Russia at first thought, that in fact, uh, President Zelensky has taken a tough stand. He wants to protect Ukrainian sovereignty. He would like to see Ukrainian membership in the EU and even in NATO. He has called on NATO to try to accelerate the process so that uh, Ukraine could become a member of the alliance. All of this is anathema to Russia. They viewed that as a terrible threat, uh, not just NATO, but even the European Union, because that brings democracy. And one of the things that uh, the Kremlin fears the most, the most is democratic contamination. They do not want to have a successful democracy on its borders. So NATO is a military threat in uh, Russia's eyes, but the EU is also a huge, huge threat. And you will recall that the invasion in uh, the east using hybrid uh, means, as well as in Crimea and the subsequent illegal annexation of Crimea, followed uh, the rejection by Ukraine of uh, a president that was uh, really a Russian puppet and the desire of the Ukrainian people to rejoin Europe. Uh, the headline in the Globe and Mail, war is already here on the Russian border. Ukrainian troops waiting for uh, Putin's big push. Uh, what is next here, then? This is what we don't know. Uh, about 13,000 people have already died, and there are skirmishes uh, virtually every day. Russia has massed uh, perhaps as many as 85,000 troops on Ukraine's borders in Crimea or in uh, the area adjoining the Donbass, I don't think anything is predetermined. In a sense, Russia is testing the waters, and what will happen depends partly on what Russia wants to achieve, Russian fears and Russian interpretation of opportunities, but it is contingent also to a great extent on what we do. 
what signals do we send? What is the level of our determinations, determination collectively? What are we prepared to do? Uh, should Russia move? Are we ready to help Ukraine uh, with additional significant uh, numbers of defensive weapons? Are we ready to pressure uh, Germany to forego the completion of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is so crucial uh, for Russia to export more energy, earn more money? Russia is uh, very, very dependent on energy, and uh, if that pipeline is not completed, that would be a huge blow to Russia. So we have many tools that we can employ, but we have not used them all that effectively in the past. And we need to get together, and NATO needs to be cohesive, and especially the United States has to show leadership, not just rhetoric, because there was a strong rhetoric uh, under Obama, but it was a kind of leadership uh, from behind. And it was during uh, that presidency that we saw Russia uh, commit its aggression against Ukraine, annexed Crimea, and that's where we saw Russia move massively into Syria and prop up uh, one of the bloodiest regimes uh, in the world, the mm. Assad regime, which has murdered something like half a million of, of its own people and uh, created uh, vast numbers, uh, millions and millions of refugees. Many were concerned about world order with Donald Trump in power in the United States. It, it worked. For, it, it, the policy uh, uh, went away from working together and more everybody looking after themselves. Uh, people were concerned at what direction the world order was taking. Uh, does that change with Biden in power? Certainly Biden's rhetoric is about uh, uh, joint uh, uh, policies of uh, collective uh, action. Uh, he is soothing, he is reassuring. But uh, uh, Mr. Trump, who was very provocative, uh, vulgar in, in, in many ways, uh, he nonetheless uh, dramatically increased American military spending. He had pushed a policy of energy independence and the United States became the largest energy producer in the world and an exporter, which was devastating for uh, Putin because 60% plus of their exports are energy. And when energy prices are low, uh, that creates lots and lots of problems uh, for him. And uh, during the administration of Mr. Trump, Europe was coerced, if you like, into uh, increasing defense spending to the tune of something like an additional $142 billion. So all these were extremely deleterious for uh, for uh, Russia. So in many ways, uh, uh, as much as Mr. Trump seemed obsequious when he came to Putin, uh, where he viewed Putin or talked about Mr. Putin as a, as a friend, uh, whereas you see the contrast with President Biden, who called him a killer, in terms of policy, the policies of the Biden administration might turn out to be much more favorable to, to Russia. I'm not sure the Kremlin realizes that yet, uh, but uh, it may turn out to be the case. So that's why we have to see if uh, the rhetoric that Mr. Biden is employing, such as we uh, support uh, Ukraine all out, whether that has any real meaning. Oral Braun with us, Professor of International Relations and Political Science, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Oral, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. 
My pleasure. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.